The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. You're watching Here and Now 2024 election coverage. Deadlines loom as parties rush to submit their proposed voting maps to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And a state medical marijuana proposal ushers in a new legislative season. I'm Frederica Freiber. Tonight on Here and Now, we hear the latest on expected remedial voting maps and how to get them in place in time for the 2024 elections. Plus, predictions for the upcoming election season with our political panelists, Bill McCoshin and Scott Ross. A report on solutions for surviving in today's dairy farming industry and remembering Herb Cole. It's Here and Now for January 12. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ordered both parties in the legislative districts case submit their own remedial maps by today, along with evidence to back why theirs comports with the opinion ruled on by the court last month. The liberal side, which brought the case before the court, called it a fantastic decision, while the side defending the state's GOP-drawn maps called the case pre-decided. The state's high court ruled Wisconsin's legislative maps are unconstitutional because half of all districts are not contiguous, having islands of territory nestled inside an adjacent district. In a motion to reconsider, the parties backing the Republican-drawn maps said the accelerated timeline needed to have new remedial maps in place, quote, failed to give the legislature a reasonable opportunity to redistrict and apply the court's newfound contiguity rules and leaves insufficient time before the 2024 election deadlines commence. They also accused the court of being, quote, largely silent on respondents' arguments and not giving them a full and fair opportunity to litigate this case or be heard on proposed remedies. Mark Gaber, attorney for the Campaign Legal Center, the leading group bringing this lawsuit, pushes back on these arguments. States all across the country have these annexations the same way that Wisconsin does, and they don't have any problem having districts that are fully contiguous. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is not ordering a quicker schedule than what we see in the normal redistricting case. This is just the way they all are. Uh, and certainly the parties are all having the opportunity to, to brief issues and have argument and submit maps. And there's a process with independent experts. And, and so it's really a robust process that the court has put in place. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has done is adhered to the letter of the law and said that when it imposes a plan, a new map, it, it's going to be done in a way that does not put a thumb on the scale in favor of certain Wisconsinites over other Wisconsinites. The Wisconsin Supreme Court just rejected the motion for reconsideration. For more on the process moving forward, we turn to Barry Burden, professor of political science at UW-Madison and director of the Elections Research Center. And thanks very much for being here. Glad to be with you. So, as we've mentioned, the deadline for submitting new maps was today. There are the legislature's maps and the governor's maps. What happens now? 
Well, the, uh, parties will have submitted the maps, and then those parties can offer responses to the maps from the other side over the next week. So those reply briefs will come in in the next seven days. And then essentially all of that material gets handed to the two consultants that the court decided would evaluate the material, and they have until February 1 to do their work. So at what point would the governor, for example, have an opportunity to veto the legislature's maps? Yeah, that's a little unclear to me. Um, the, the parties in the case may submit proposals today, but it seems very unlikely that there would be a full legislative process. So I, I think we'll just have to wait and see what gets submitted. My guess is that the executive branch and the legislative branch will have different ideas and will submit maps essentially separately without bothering with much of a legislative process. And yet this is on a major fast track. It is moving very quickly. You know, the decision came down on December 22nd, just before the Christmas weekend. Uh, the court hopes, and the Wisconsin Elections Commission hopes to have everything done by mid-March so that maps are in place before the August primaries uh, later in the summer. So it, it is moving at a good clip. Is it expected uh, in your mind that the court's consultants will actually draw these voting maps from scratch in, in the end here? I think that's likely, but there is a lot of ambiguity in the court's order. It said that the consultants should evaluate the maps that are proposed by the parties in terms of whether they meet all of the traditional criteria plus the additional criterion of having no partisan impact. But the court has not defined what they mean by that. I think the consultants have some good concepts to rely on from work they've done in other states and academic work on, um, on measuring the bias in maps. But they will have to come up with standards, essentially, to evaluate whether those criteria are met. It's, it seems unlikely that any one map would meet all of the criteria in a clear black and white way, and so the consultants will probably be led to produce some kind of maps of their own. So as to the criteria, what will the maps have to look like for the court's approval here? Well, they will meet the criteria that the maps have met in the past. Uh, for example, having equal populations in each district, complying with the Federal Voting Rights Act to ensure the voting rights of racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, trying not to split counties and municipalities unnecessarily. Uh, this time around, they will also have to make sure there aren't any separated pieces of territory. All the districts need to be contiguous in a kind of literal fashion on the map. And then this additional criterion they've added of no partisan impact, meaning the map looks sort of neutral or the way an un uninterested party would have produced the maps. So my, my guess is the districts will look somewhat different from the ones we have today. They will certainly shake up where incumbents end up uh, because that's not part of the consideration for the map makers. So um, thrown out was this requirement of lease change from the last go around. Yeah, that was a, a major uh, statement in the court's opinion that they didn't want to essentially reaffirm the existing biases in the map. And they, they demanded that the maps be drawn from scratch in a way that is politically neutral. So not advantaging one side or the other and adopting a least change approach they viewed as essentially locking in existing biases in favor of Republicans. What is the expectation that the remedial voting maps will, in fact, be in place in time for this year's elections? I, I think it can happen. Uh, this is a new process for the state Supreme Court. They've not produced maps in this way before. It's an accelerated time schedule. Uh, so it, you know, it needs to be done essentially within the month of February to have everything in place in early March. 
Uh, I think it's very possible for consultants to do that. I think it's a question of how fast the court can operate when it evaluates the maps it ends up getting from the consultants. Um, but given the technology and the familiarity with all of the interested parties here, I think maps can come together pretty quickly. In the end, how might uh, remedial maps change the political landscape in Wisconsin? I think the number one effect will be shaking up incumbents. Districts today are drawn with incumbents in mind. They are players in the process in the state legislature, so they have their own interests in mind. There are some parts of the state where incumbents' home addresses are very close to one another, and yet the districts have been drawn to ensure they're in different districts. So we should expect lots of places where incumbents get thrown in together into the same districts or are forced to make hard decisions. I think that impact will be bigger than the partisan impact which will surely advantage Democrats, but not probably put both chambers immediately up for grabs for both parties. All right. Uh, Barry Burden, thanks very much for your expertise. Thank you. And then there were two candidates left to go up against Donald Trump in the Republican presidential primary, as Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis debated this week, and Trump held his own town hall. For some 2024 election season predictions, we turn to our political panel, Republican Bill McCoshin and Democrat Scott Ross, and thanks for being here both. Great thanks to be for here. having us. Uh, Bill, I'm going to start with you and ask about Donald Trump. He continues to dominate. Uh, what is that allure uh, on the part of Donald Trump, even as he faces so many criminal charges? I, honestly, I think the criminal charges have helped him with his own base. Uh, over the course of 2023, he got stronger, not weaker. You know, 12 months ago, Ron DeSantis was within striking distance of him, and today Ron, uh, Trump is up by 20 or 30 points, depending on the poll you're looking at. So what I'm looking for on Monday night, Fred, is, is expectations. So Trump is up on the Des Moines Register poll by over 20 points. He released his own poll this week that has him up by 30. I'm not sure I would have done that if I were him, mm -hmm. because if he comes in less than that, he doesn't meet expectations. DeSantis has to win Iowa to exceed expectations. Coming in a close second is okay, but it's tough to figure out the chessboard for him, what his next move is after that. For Haley to get momentum out of Iowa, if she beats DeSantis and takes second, all of a sudden, she's got momentum into a, a state that she might potentially win, which is New Hampshire. So, Scott, what do you think Donald Trump's allure is? I think that he is an unstoppable force inside of the Republican Party. In every poll, he's been up, at least in the state of Wisconsin, amongst Republican voters for the last, I don't know, since last September. He's up 50 percent, you know, all over all the challengers. Um, and so I think, you know, what it is is the, you know, he is holding the party hostage. They have, you know, for the most part, readily accepted that. You know, Stockholm syndrome, and uh, that can win him a primary, but it ain't going to win him in November because Democrats and independents have rejected him time and time again, particularly in the battleground state of Wisconsin. Do you think, Bill, that uh, Donald Trump will carry Wisconsin in the primary? It's hard to say. He didn't hear, He didn't win the primary here in 16. Ted Cruz did. He did win the general here in 16, but then he lost here in 20. So I don't know that he's done enough in the suburban areas to bring suburban women back to his coalition. There's work to be done. You know, part of that effort might be who he picks as a running mate if he's ultimately the nominee. But uh, if it's still a competitive race when it gets to Wisconsin, my money would be on his opponent. Scott, do you feel as though younger Dems are disenchanted with Joe Biden? Absolutely not, because they know what's happened as a result of Trump and the Republicans having charge of government. Abortion rights are gone. There is an attack over and over again on, on LGBTQ people. Um, he's the, you know, 
President Biden's the only president who's tried to really do something about student loan debt. Um, and, you know, they also appreciate the fact that, you know, they have access to health care as a result of Joe Biden. So, no, I don't think there's any sort of, uh, I don't think, the alternative is so far worse, and I think that students are smart enough to know that. And I think, you know, in particular, we're going to see that, for instance, in the third CD, where they've got six four-year UW campuses, a bunch of two-year campuses. I think that's going to be the thing that takes not only, you know, Derek Van Orton down, but also Donald Trump. Where do you think, Bill, uh, young voters stand um, between Donald Trump, say, and Joe Biden? I think, I think the war in Israel is, is dividing them, right? You've you got a lot of pro-Palestinian voters who would normally be in the Democratic coalition who are showing up at Tammy Baldwin events, they're showing up at other Democratic senators' events, and they're showing up at Joe Biden events. And uh, that's going to be problematic for him. I'm not sure there will be as much energy uh, with young voters in November of this year as there has been, in at least in last November's election. Uh, we'll see, but they're they're disenfranchised with where this administration is heading, and which could be good news for Republicans uh, if we have the right message to attract them. Uh, Scott, is Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin unbeatable? Wow. Um, well, she has been so far, that's for sure, and there isn't a real challenger to her yet. You know, it's because of her record. It's her record of accomplishments, bipartisan uh, agreements on things like, you know, uh, manufacturing, buy in America. Uh, she is a leader on reproductive freedoms, which is going to be huge for her in a Senate race, um, especially when she's paired against possibly, you know, the most anti-choice uh, candidate that we'll ever see if we get Havdi or David Clark. But again, I think the Republicans are the ones who are in disarray here because they don't have anybody to go up against a, a sitting senator. Do you think that uh, Tammy Baldwin is formidable, Bill? Oh, there's no question she's formidable. She's a tough out. And anyone who thinks otherwise on our side isn't isn't looking at her electoral history. She's She works hard. She does phenomenal on constituent services. Where I think her greatest, I think she has two vulnerabilities. Number one is Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. Can she run ahead of Joe Biden if she needs to? Maybe. Ron Johnson did run ahead of uh, Trump here in 16, but it's pretty rare for a U.S. Senate candidate to run ahead of the top of their ticket. She may need to do that in order to win. And secondly, I, I think the border is a real issue for Democrats writ large. And if they don't solve that uh, between now and, and October, for example, uh, I think that's going to be a strong vulnerability for her. What about that issue of immigration? I think that it's a, you know, it is a, uh, a red herring that's designed to divide people, you know, white people against people of color. It's something the Republicans have done for decades and decades. And while I do definitely agree with what Bill said, uh, you know, Senator Baldwin has been at the top of the ticket before. She was won by 11 points in 2018, and uh, Governor Evers had won by just one point. So I think she, you know, has an entire uh, possibility of being the leader of the ticket. The problem is, is that we have, sorry, the thing we have to do is remember what happened in 2016. Hillary Clinton's campaign gave up on Wisconsin. They gave up on Michigan. They did a half-hearted half job in Pennsylvania. That ain't ever going to happen again. So Democrats are going to have the resources, and I think it'll be a good Democratic victory in November. So I want to... Um... Well, the thing to remember is only one statewide incumbent in America lost in 2022, at the, the governor of Nevada. So beating a statewide incumbent, regardless of party, is very difficult. Yeah. So, Bill, I want to ask you about the uh, recall effort against Assembly Speaker Robin Voss launched this week, uh, ostensibly for his opposition of Donald Trump and failing to impeach Megan Wolf. Uh, what does this say about the schism in the Republican Party in the state? I think it's a small faction in the 63rd Assembly District who 
dislike the speaker for one reason or another. It's destructive. Anyone who's watching this program that lives in that district should not sign those recall papers. Republicans shouldn't be fighting Republicans. They should have their uh, aim focused at Democrats. They're going to be running on new maps this fall. There's a presidential race. Uh, there'll be competitive uh, congressional races. We don't need to be wasting resources fighting our own team before that. Scott, 30 seconds left. Uh, what do you make of the Voss recall effort? I think it's, I, I can't believe that the Republican Party would reject a thrice married real estate guy who's in court all the time. I, I, you know, so it's shocking to me. Nah, it's terrible for democracy. You know, Voss hasn't done anything that's recallable and the challenge will be swatted away like Bill says. But again, division on the Republican side. All right, we leave it there. Uh, thanks very much, Bill McCosh and Scott Ross. Thank you. Thank you. In agriculture news, a small but growing number of Wisconsin dairy farmers are embracing robotic milkers amid difficulties maintaining a workforce, ongoing market swings, and uncertainties over an updated farm bill. Here and now reporter Aditi Dibnath has more on what this technology means for the future of Wisconsin dairy farms. It has been life-changing ever since. This December marked five years since the Hinchley family moved their herd of nearly 300 cows to a new barn with robotic milking machines. So it's been life-changing because being able to go in and just check on what cows we need to focus on and not have to focus on every single cow has been so beneficial to my physical health, but also my mental health. In addition to a few part-time student employees, the Hinchleys have just one full-time staffer, since automating processes like milking and feeding. Typically, we end up with high school or college students because we are close enough to Madison, but uh, there has been times when it's been difficult. Hopefully, she's gonna be an amazing milk girl. No longer tied to milking cows herself twice a day, Hinchley says both she and her cows are happier with the robotic milkers operating 24 hours a day. It's not necessarily something that you would have to do uh, in order to stay in the dairy business. UW-Madison professor of animal and dairy sciences Chuck Nicholson says only about 8% of Wisconsin's dairy farmers have implemented the new technology, typically family farms that want to save on labor costs. The labor shortage is definitely a key motivating factor. The high-tech collars fitted to each cow send about 130 different data points about each animal directly to Hinchley's smartphone. There are other benefits that farms get uh, from adopting these robotic milking systems that can include you know, better milk production, more milk per cow, better animal health, uh, improved milk quality. While many Wisconsin farmers are considering the impact AI may have on their dairy production, Nicholson says 75% of Wisconsin farmers said they have not and will not implement robotics on their farm. When we built this, I told the people that were designing it and stuff that I don't want any moving parts. You're always here this time of year, you know that? John Rosenau manages a 600 cow herd in Buffalo County. It's our kitchen window. I put it there because uh, before when we were hiring local people, I needed to see the parking lot. So who didn't show up? And if somebody didn't show up, I had to go down and cover for him. He struggled to find reliable labor before hiring his first immigrant employee nearly 25 years ago. Since we hired uh, Mexicans, I never have to do that anymore. I could live in town because um, they always come on time and they're here on time. 
Rosa now founded the nonprofit organization Puentes, which bridges the gap between farmers and their immigrant employees by sending them both to meet the employees' families in Mexico. He says he's never considered robotics because of his commitment to his human resources. I've seen the, in Mexico the uh, different homes and stuff that they've built, and they've educated their children. They're getting uh, health care, things that they weren't able to get before. Uh, when I look at both sides, the business side and the humanitarian side, uh, it leans real, real strongly to the uh, uh, human side of it. Rosenau says the salesmen that have pitched him their technology are clever. They capitalize on old farmers, he says, and convince them that they're out of touch. And a lot of times, I have, when this first started, I uh, would feel bad. I, you know, I had an old fuddy-duddy. You, know, you question yourself. Rosenau's herd would require about eight automated milkers at about a half million dollars a piece, as well as a new barn. He says modern farm equipment also requires more expensive and specialized labor to do the repairs. Doesn't matter if it's new or old or whatever, it's going to break. And with the volatile nature of the dairy economy, he says old equipment that you can fix is better than new equipment you can't, like this front-end bloater. It only cost us uh, $25,000 40 years ago. And if we've all been similar to that now, probably looking at 200000 and then we wouldn't be able to fix it. We'd have to have the dealer fix it. Nicholson says that for the past nine months in particular, all dairy farmers have been losing money. The circumstances we're in are really unusual right now. That's because for the first time in more than 20 years, the USDA is hearing proposals to amend the system that determines how milk is priced. Nicholson says this system, called the Federal Milk Marketing Orders, doesn't have a mechanism to adapt to economic or technological changes over time. It is a lengthy, uh, sometimes excruciating process to make that happen. On Wisconsin farms, however, producers can't afford to follow the lengthy discussions taking place in Washington. We don't know what we're going to get. We have no idea. With commodities that we are producing, we're in a global scale. We don't know what's going on with China until it happens. We don't know how much Brazil is producing. All of that affects our bottom line. And so whether by machine or by hand, Wisconsin farmers press on milking their herds. For Here and Now, I'm Aditi Devnath. Today, people packed the Pfizer Forum Arena in Milwaukee to celebrate the life and contributions of former U.S. Senator and philanthropist Herb Cole, who passed away two days after Christmas. Special Projects journalist Merv Seymour has our report. He lived a life we all admired. Since his passing, the flag at the state capitol and other government buildings across the state fly at half-staff in memory of Herb Cole. The Bucks suggested honoring Herb with a statue outside the arena. My uncle declined, saying, I'm just not a statue kind of guy. From inside the arena, he helped fund and near the street that shares his name, his memorial service. Saying goodbye to Herb after more than 80 years of saying hello and so many more welcoming and positive words is really difficult. It's fitting the tribute for Cole is open to all of Milwaukee and Wisconsin, the city where he grew up and the state he served. People proudly remember the four-time U.S. senator with the legendary slogan, Nobody, Senator, but yours. 
Following his father's footsteps in the 1970s, Cole and his brother led the booming growth of Cole's grocery stores, which began in Milwaukee, spread throughout Wisconsin, and grew into a brand of over 1,100 department stores in every state but Hawaii. Join us for this first edition of Wisconsin Week. Herb Cole has been a familiar face here on TVS Wisconsin's political programming. Tonight, we'll interview Senate candidates Herb Cole and Susan Engeleiter. Government is too important to be left exclusively to career politicians. Never married and with no kids, the former leader of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin never lost an election, never took contributions from political committees or special interest groups. I've spent my entire life helping to enhance the economy of Wisconsin. One of his biggest interests, buying and saving the Milwaukee Bucks in 1985, were at the time an unheard of $18 million. He sold the team in 2014 for $550 million, donating $100 million of it toward building a new arena to help once again keep the team from ever leaving his hometown. You did it without the tens and ones. Herb Cole's spirit to give lives on. His time, his efforts, his millions toward funding hundreds of teachers, students, and various after-school programs at places like the Boys and Girls Club. He put his foot down and forced more funding for enforcement to fight drug traffickers and juvenile justice. He led bipartisan support forcing safety locks to be sold with guns. He helped lower the price of prescription drugs and passed laws for better background checks at nursing homes to better protect seniors. In Washington, he proudly fought for farmers, especially Wisconsin farmers. Having safety nets that go to producers uh, so that when times really get bad, uh, through no fault of their own, they're not all forced to go under. At the University of Wisconsin in Madison, his alma mater, Cole's $25 million donation helped build the $76 million Cole Center. Seen here at the university's La Follette School of Public Affairs, which he funded with the largest donation ever, Herb Cole smiles, doing what he might have loved doing most, giving. Reporting for Here Now, I'm Irv Seymour. Herb Cole was 88. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.